The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and as I like to remind you each and every week, I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks, and my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is in partnership with Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? You can uh, learn more about both of those newsletters by going to miningstocks.com. I should also like to mention the best place to go to follow everything that I do, including the second hour of today's two-hour show, is jtaylormedia. That's J-A-Y-TaylorMedia.com. I want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making it the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. I also want to thank our sponsors for making this show, this show economically viable. Our sponsors are Nanostruck Technologies, Brazil Resources, and Metanor Resources. Next week, uh, we will be uh, hearing from lead scientists uh, at Nanostruck Technologies about that company's wonderful water technology, uh, technology they're using to clean water in uh, commercial quantities. I, it looks like a very, very promising company. The stock is selling at just around $0.10 cents a share. I, I think you're going to want to hear what they have to say next uh, week when we talk uh, to the lead scientist, Dr. Lee Wilson. Uh, I'll also be talking to Ron Perry on, the Jan- on January 28th. He's with uh, Metanor Resource. This is a company that is now producing 4,500 ounces of gold uh, per month, and they are in commercial production. Stock is selling at about 14 or 15 cents. I think also uh, worth looking at, and I think a very exciting potentially, especially as the gold market does seem to be getting a bid, and as gold shares seem to be performing quite well so far in the early days of this uh, of this year. Well, I've titled today's show. Uh, the uh, hyperinflation 2014, the end game begins. The title of today's show is taken from the latest view of economics uh, of economist John Williams, who has been proclaiming the inevitability of hyperinflation in America given the mounting debt accumulated by the United States that simply cannot ever be repaid. Reasonably enough, John believes politicians will always take the easy way out by printing money to pay for their obligations. And as a result uh, of that, John believes that the dollar will simply collapse and uh, thereby sending imported goods uh, up way, way higher than they are now, in fact, to hyperinflationary levels. 
Uh, we'll be hearing from John Williams in just a few minutes after a first commercial break, and uh, for, that would be for the balance of today's, uh, the first hour of today's show. Of course, not everyone agrees with uh, John's view. Certainly, uh, we promoted this show, and I immediately got emails from Bob Hoy and Mish Shedlack, both of who are on the deflation side. Mish simply wrote, quote, if, they're, if they are preaching hyperinflation, they are in fantasy land, end of quote. And Bob Hoy wrote to me, uh, he said, Hyperinflation ain't going to happen. And he sent me some very interesting comments and reasons for him, uh, for his views, which I will present to you at the end of the second hour of today's show. The whole argument uh, as to how the economic pathology created by Keynesian economics will work out uh, is, is really based on uh, whether or not we have hyperinflation or a massive deflationary depression. And one thinks of the very heated confrontation between Ms. Shedlack and Peter Schiff. Uh, this is a very emotional issue for many people, but I would rather look at a reasoned response for the question uh, of how this is going to resolve itself. And for that, we're very pleased to have with us in the second hour today Dr. Mark Thornton. He's an Austrian economist and former professor. He is also now with the Mises Institute. You will need to go to J. Taylor Media, that's J-A-Y Taylor Media, and click on the podcast button starting at 4 o'clock today to listen to the discussion with Dr. Thornton. I'm expecting Dr. Thornton may not come down on either side of that great question, the inflation-deflation question, because uh, it's simply not the way Austrians usually uh, think. They usually think in terms of uh, it's very difficult to predict human action, and uh, of course that's what the Keynesians try to do. They try to predict human action. Uh, but anyway, we're going to have to move on. I see we're just about out of time. Um, second hour then, Daniel McAdams will be joining me as well. Ron Paul Peace, uh, Institute for Peace and Prosperity. Uh, so you'll want to tune in again to jtaylormedia.com for the second hour of today's show. We do have to go to break now, and when we come back, I'll uh, be talking to John Williams, so don't go away. I'll be right back. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Attention mining investors. Brazil Resources Incorporated trading as BRIZF on the OTC and BRI on the TSXV is exploring and developing five gold projects in Brazil surrounded by expanding gold mines and deposits. It's acquiring a nearly 700,000 ounce gold resource. BRI has top geologists earlier involved in discovering 10 million ounces of gold in Brazil led by recognized mining executive Admir Adnani, chairman. Check out Brazil Resources com or call 1-855-630-1001. That's 1-855-630-1001. As the bull market in gold resumes, gold shares will explode to much higher levels, and those companies that are ramping up production will take off first. Metanor Resources, symbol MTO in Canada and MEAOF in the U.S., is now in commercial production and producing over 4,500 ounces of gold per month from its bachelor mine in Quebec. With seven drills turning, I look for the company's gold resource to grow dramatically on both its bachelor and berry projects. I believe Metanor now offers major upside potential for savvy investors. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You're 
listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again, John Williams. Walter John Williams, known as uh, John Williams, was born in 1949, and that makes him a spring chicken compared to me because I was born two years earlier. Uh, John received his uh, A.B. in economics uh, from Dartmouth College in 1971 and then then an M.B.A. from Dartmouth's Amos Tuck School of Business Administration in 1972, where he was named an Edward Tuck Scholar. During his career as a consulting economist, John has worked with individuals as well as Fortune 500 companies. For more than 25 years, he has been a private consulting economist. Out of necessity, he became a specialist in government economic reporting, and he learned that virtually all economic stats quoted by the U.S. government are spun using optimistic assumptions that often bear little reality but make politicians look good and put money in the pockets of Wall Street. Boy, how true has that become in, in recent years. So John has really been spot on and early, uh, early to discover that. Uh, he writes the shadow government statistics, of which I am a, uh, have been a subscriber for some time, and it's one of those can't-do-without with, newsletters, I must say. Uh, and uh, his work has been recognized by the mainstream media, uh, where he has been quoted in publications like the New York Times and Investors Business Daily. But before we say hello to John, I want to say I think that the mainstream doesn't give John nearly the attention he is due, and probably because they don't really want to hear what he has to say. But this show is about trying to find out what is really going on as opposed to the kind of spin uh, material that we're given on the mainstream media. So welcome, John. It's really good to have you back with us once again. Uh, thank you so much for having me, Jay. You know, it's uh, a pleasure. I met you a number of years ago. I think we did, uh, Al Corlin and you and I did a, a couple of radio shows. Uh, and um, your your integrity is second to none. I think you really work extremely hard on telling it like it is. And, you know, if people don't want to listen, well, that's uh, they, they, they close their ears to their own peril. Um, you know, over the past several years now, you've been warning, I, I think going back to about 2006 or so, you started talking about the what you perceived as a growing likelihood of hyperinflation. Um, and, you know, the re- main thing I want to talk to you today about, John, is your most recent uh, newsletter, which just came out this past week, headed up Hyperinflation 2014, The End Game Begins. For the sake of listeners who may not have heard you before, and I think there's probably quite a few that didn't, can you uh, explain, just define what you mean by hyperinflation? We had a very serious inflation that you and I lived through in the 1970s. Is that what we're talking about or something worse? Well, we're, we're talking uh, so- something a lot worse along the uh, lines of what happened in the uh, Weimar Republic in Germany back in the early 20s or, the, or Zimbabwe in uh, more more recent decades, uh, there are all sorts of definitions on hyperinflation, you know, as to the number of digits that you have. But I try to I try to keep things relatively simple and uh, the way most people can envision something. And I, I use a very crude definition uh, personally. That is that when the uh, 
the, the largest note in the circulating um, and for a currency before the hyperinflation in the United States, it would be the $100 bill. Mm-hmm. When that becomes more uh, worth more as a functional uh, uh, toilet paper or wallpaper, um, that, then as currency, you have a hyperinflation. I'm, I'm looking at a circumstance where the uh, currency involved becomes absolutely worthless in terms of its uh, uh, purchasing power. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the so- uh, circumstance here, I mean, we would, <clears throat> many fiat currencies where you don't have the backing of uh, hard assets such as gold behind them uh, end up in this type of an environment. But where things really went awry for the dollar, and we, we've been living beyond our means for decades. I mean, you know, with problems here that go back to the way the Great Depression was resolved and mm-hmm. when Franklin Roosevelt took us off the domestic uh, gold standard. Mm-hmm. Um, he effectively... He put us on what I like to refer to as the debt standard. Mm-hmm. Uh, nothing behind the, the currency. You basically uh, borrowed the money that you needed, and uh, you, as long as people were willing to lend you the money, you, you, were, you were okay. And uh, uh, decade after decade, you've had a number of administrations, I think it's 12 now, that have built upon that with the, uh, the, the deficit generally getting ever larger, the federal debt getting ever ever larger. Um, we, we have now gotten to the limits of the, the, the debt system, uh, where Roosevelt was, to a certain extent, at the limits of, of the gold standard. He was in the Great Depression. Uh, he wanted to uh, uh, expand government spending, but the, the gold standard had constraints on the system. You just couldn't create money willy-nilly. Um, so by going off gold, he was able to get around that, but you have no way of getting off the debt standard. What we've been through in 2008 and such was effectively uh, the, 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 the collapse of the excessive debt expansion that just had gotten out of control. But the, the sign for me that we were heading into a hyperinflation took place in um, 2003-2004 when uh, Medicare was overhauled, the, uh, overhauled in the prescription drug plan was put in place. Mm-hmm. Um, George Bush. Yes, George Bush. Uh, and this involves both sides of the aisle. Uh, I mean, this, this has been done with the uh, blessing of both the Republicans and the Democrats over over the decades. It's, it's been a perk of office. You satisfy the uh, uh, political needs by spending money. And uh, what happened... What you have to consider here is that where you, you see the government's uh, deficit reporting in this uh, last year was uh, somewhat under seven seven hundred billion dollars. Year mm-hmm. before it had been one point one trillion. Um, that's supposedly the net cash that is uh, um, going out where it's not covered by receipts coming in. Mm-hmm. They actually are using some accounting gimmicks so that this last year was. Uh, Cash-based deficit was probably about a trillion dollars. Uh, they did some funny things with uh, dividends uh, from uh, Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, where those institutions, because uh, they, what they did is they uh, capitalized their tax loss, uh, uh, losses going forward. Um, they could conceivably re- re- recover those. Uh, they, could, they, they could recover taxes that had been. 
uh, paid, and then because that that, that uh, accounting gimmick put them into profit, they were able to declare a dividend. Mm. They paid cash to the government, which reduced the deficit, yeah. and enabled the deficit the government to just skirt around the uh, the debt ceiling for a while. Mm. Um, you have things like that that have happened over time, but you get around a lot of that <clears throat> when you look at um, the government's financial statements based on generally accepted accounting principles. Uh, same type of uh, concept that's used by large corporations. Mm-hmm. Large corporations, among other things, uh, have to account for their uh, unfunded uh, pension obligations, unfunded, unfunded retiree health uh, health plans, and such. Um, that's not the cash base. That's your accrual accounting. Right. And um, the, the government started doing this on and off back in the 70s. It became formal accounting in 2000. Came out. It comes out every year by the uh, published by the Treasury, audited by the uh, General Accounting Office. And uh, in 2004, what they showed was that the um, total deficit um, for that year was. Uh, Beyond whatever had been on a cash basis, mm-hmm. was eleven trillion dollars higher. Wow, trillion! Uh, because of the unfunded liabilities that were taken on with the uh, the Medicare overhaul, mm. that that program was set up without funding. Um, and at that time, the total gross federal debt was about the same order of magnitude. So, in one fell swoop, um, the government doubled its uh, obligations. And uh, you'll, you'll allow for the uh, one-time accounting gimmicks or, cha- gimmicks or changes to the system. What we're seeing is that the annual deficit right now is running uh, in excess of six trillion dollars per year. Now that's and, using that's using accrual accounting as well uh, uh, that you're that you're talking about now, John, as opposed to yes. the cash accounting that the government reports on. That's correct. So that uh-huh. in, instead of the uh, six hundred odd billion dollars that of cash deficit shown in uh, 2013. Uh, my best estimate is it was about $6.8 trillion in, in, in 2013 on a gap, ba- gap basis. Okay, John, let me just stop you for a second. If, our, if we're running a $6 trillion deficit, I mean, we're, we're, is that what you said, a $6 trillion deficit? Yes. How much are we taking in in tax revenues on the other side of the – I mean, what – well, that's, what is it tax? What is it? What is the revenue coming into the government now? That's 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 net of the revenue. That's net of the revenue. But just to put it in perspective, how much would the revenue be? What does the government more or less? Uh, I, do you I, have, I, I I don't have a I don't have a. But it would be a, a, a couple a good, of trillion. I, I don't I don't, yeah. I don't have a good number at the okay uh, tip of my tongue. Okay. Uh, I mean, you're talking, uh, you know, a couple of trillion dollars. Yeah, uh, that's what I was going to say. Probably a couple uh, trillion. Let, yeah. let me let me put it this way: If mm-hmm. you wanted to bring that that's a, the, that six trillion shortfall, mm-hmm. that's one year. That's how much it's getting worse by each year. Aggregate, we take total obligations <clears throat> and gross federal debt. You're over ninety trillion dollars now. So it's getting getting worse by by, by six trillion dollars a year, and and what's included there? I mean the the short the shortfall in the in the uh, funding of Social Security, Medicare, those unfunded liabilities mm-hmm. are being valued here on a net present value basis. Mm-hmm. That means okay. the future, the stream of uh, the the cash flow going forward is discounted for the current value of money, <clears throat> the amount of money you need in hand today to cover the obligation in the future. 
if the government were to be solvent, um, it had, where you have about $75 trillion in uh, unfunded liabilities, net present value, that's how much cash the government would have to set aside today to cover itself in the future. That's what and it should it, be setting aside today to cover the future promises it's made to the voters of America. Should have it set aside. That yes. amount, not, oh, we'll do this 10 years from now. Yeah. That's what they need today to cover what they've already obligated to. It's right. impossible. Right. I mean, the, the GDP is around $16 trillion. The money supplies about the same order of magnitude. No way that that could ever be done. Yeah. So, so looking at this, going back, um, when the when the uh, Medicare system was taken over the hill, um, I started talking people uh, to people in the Bush administration, saying, hey, look, this is... Uh, uh, you're doing the system to um, hyperinflation. Mm -hmm. The response I got back was, that's too far into the future to talk about. Yeah, yeah. And we're, uh, the problem is the future comes, and it, I find the older you get, the faster it comes, and we're there. Well, uh, that is that, true, John. That is so that, true. You know, I have to ask you, uh, you, you, were, you became very concerned when Bush put this, this program, this medical program through a um, prescription drugs and whatever what have you but now of course we've had obamacare how much worse does that make it worse i'm assuming it makes it worse oh yeah uh well the so what the, do you the, see the, nor, nor, we normally have the account the the formal government accounting by this time of year where we would for fiscal 2013 comes out in mid-december but they've delayed it till the end of february so i'm estimating this year we have hard numbers <clears throat> on uh, on 2012 um, the uh, they're having in 2012 they were having some uh, problems agreeing on the uh, on the costs there. Um, the Obama administration was showing an improvement in the system, um, which uh, I don't think anyone believed, including the government's uh, uh, the GAO. That's now the Government Accountability Office used to be the mm -hmm. General Accounting Office. Mm -hmm. But um, the um, uh, they, they came up with an alternative. Uh, to what the administration was putting on its numbers, it made a difference of, uh, I think it was about $13 trillion. Uh, you're probably, you've probably seen a net deterioration tied to the system of that order of magnitude mm -hmm. with, with, with Obamacare. Oh. You know, John, uh, when you first started talking about hyperinflation, you were, you were talking about uh, it being further into the future, I think maybe 2018 right. or so, and now yep. you're, you've put this out this year, hyperinflation 2014, the end game begins. Why have you moved, what what events, was it 2008, 2009, was it that that problem that sort of caused you to accelerate the your thinking in terms of when we're going to start seeing this uh, hockey stick-like increase in prices? Yes, that's... Uh... The, the, you had a panic in 2008. Um, the, um, the story was that the system was on the brink of collapse. They're talking here the banking system, the financial system. And this, these, this, these are the uh, <clears throat> questions coming out of the Federal Reserve, out of the government. And um, they were right. I mean, we shouldn't have gotten to that situation. Um, but through an extraordinary uh, level of miscalculation and, and uh, malfeasance, we did get to the point that the system was literally on the brink of collapse. And uh, for the Federal Reserve, for the federal government, having uh, the banking system uh, fail simply was not an option. Uh, and as a result, they did 
all sorts of extraordinary things in terms of creating whatever money was needed, whatever guarantees were, were, were needed. Uh, they bailed out all sorts of institutions. Uh, they, they spent extraordinary amounts of money. They did whatever had to be done to keep the system from collapsing. Mm-hmm. I can understand that. I don't think anyone wants to see the system collapse. Right. Uh, unfortunately, what they did, I mean, they, they did stabilize the system, but all the actions they took only pushed the problems a little bit into the future. It didn't resolve anything. The banking system is still in trouble. The economy, uh, I'll contend, never recovered. Um, it's um, it's beginning to turn down anew. Uh, you, you, you have terrible problems with the uh, GDP reporting because they uh, they understate the inflation. It's used in in calculating the GDP, and if you understate inflation, you overstate the inflation adjusted growth. Mm-hmm. If you look at the official pattern of what's happened with the GDP, uh, the the economy uh, collapsed into 2009, uh, but then it recovered in uh, early 2011. It started to expand, and it's now five six percent ahead of where it was. Uh, before the, uh, the the 2007 recession, mm-hmm. uh, problem is nothing else is showing that uh, that pattern. I'm talking about. There's no no major, no other major economic series that confirms that. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> uh, so that instead of having the uh, pattern of uh, plunge and and recovery, and I'll, I'll contend the average person hasn't seen that recovery. Absolutely, uh, that's the response I get from around the country and from many. Businesses that I talk with and people I have as clients never never happen. Mm-hmm. Um, if you take out the understatement of inflation, what you'll find is that the pattern of the GDP was plunge and then stagnation and bottom bouncing. It's come up a little bit, but uh, generally uh, there, there's no recovery, mm-hmm. and it's beginning to turn down again. The reason you haven't had a recovery, the reason you're not about to have a recovery, and from anyone who's looking at it saying, yep, I think we're going to have an economic recovery now, it's a question you've got to ask yourself, is what's driving the economic activity? The United States, usually it's the consumer. The consumer accounts for, um, with, with housing, over 70% of the, uh, the gross domestic product. Mm-hmm. Cons- the consumer is in a, a terrible liquidity bind right now. Yep. Um, if you look at uh, household income, median household income, uh, adjusted for inflation, the levels today are the same that they were back in 1960, 1967, or late 1960s, early uh, 1970s. Mm-hmm. Uh, Plus, they've got a lot more debt on their bo- on their books now than they had in 1967, 1960s. I'm, yeah. Well, in, it's. It, um, I mean, I, John, John, just to just to interrupt a minute. I remember back in those days when credit cards first started coming out. And there was a reluctance on the part of uh, f- uh, fiscally responsible individuals to take credit cards. They thought, uh, you know, their parents remembered the 1930s and how it was a bad thing to own debt, to have debt on your books. But now, as you're saying, we're back to those levels in income, but the but the consumer has all this debt, debt on his books as well. Uh, okay, well, John, uh, we have to take a commercial break now, but when we come back, I want to ask you to talk a bit about your work regarding consumer prices as well as unemployment numbers because they differ greatly from the government's numbers that I think are really viewed through rose-colored glasses. But I want to ask you about that because I think it is such an important part of this inflationary story that you're talking about, the fears that you have about rising prices, because uh, people are really in deep 
trouble right now financially, much worse than the government lets on because their purchasing power simply isn't what the government uh, states it is. So uh, I want to ask you about that after the break. So folks, don't go away. I'll be right back with John Williams in the next segment. business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network attention mining investors brazil resources incorporated trading as brizf on the otc and bri on the tsxv is exploring and developing five gold projects in brazil surrounded by expanding gold mines and deposits it's acquiring a nearly 700,000 ounce gold resource bri has top geologists earlier involved in discovering 10 million ounces of gold in brazil led by recognized mining executive Admir adnani chairman check out brazil resources or call 1-855-630-1001. That's 1-855-630-1001. As the bull market in gold resumes, gold shares will explode to much higher levels, and those companies that are ramping up production will take off first. Metanor Resources, symbol MTO in Canada and MEAOF in the U.S., is now in commercial production and producing over 4,500 ounces of gold per month from its bachelor mine in Quebec. With seven drills turning, I look for the company's gold resource to grow dramatically on both its bachelor and berry projects. I believe Metanor now offers major upside potential for savvy investors. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm back here with the economist, John Williams. John, before we went to break, you had talked about the uh, consumer uh, and how he's lost a very considerable amount of purchasing power such that the plight of the average American is much worse than the government suggests. I believe you said that the purchasing power of the consumer is now back to where it was in the late 60s, early 1970s. So, John, I want to ask you, for the benefit of those that don't listen, that are not that familiar with you, you know, I follow your work all the time, and your inflation numbers, which make eminent sense to me as a person of a middle, sort of a middle class person, I see the cost of living going up, the cost of staying alive for me in food and uh, shelter and health care and the like going up dramatically more than the 1.7% or sub 2% that the government claims it is. What are your numbers suggesting now the real cost of, of staying alive for, I guess the government used to look at a family of four or so, but I don't know how they measure it now. What is your sense of what it really costs for an average family to stay alive in America right now? Um, around uh, 8 9%. Wow, and that compares and, and, and that's, to two, that's yeah. what the government's numbers would be showing had they not changed the way they calculate the consumer price index over the last thirty years. They've deliberately uh, debased the inflation numbers so that it 
it redu- it, it uh, produces a lower estimate of, inf- of, of inflation <clears throat> that was accelerated and very openly talked about in the early 1990s. Because if they could do that, it would uh, reduce the uh, cost of living adjustments for Social Security, which would help um, uh, control the deficit without anyone in Congress having to do the politically impossible thing of voting against Social Security. Mm-hmm. Recently, you've had a lot of talk about that, uh, changing the CPI measure again to make it come in at a lower level that, again, would help to cut uh, Social Security, other program uh, cost of living adjustments. Uh, what they did in this last bu- budget deal, which at least was more, more honest than uh, uh, the fraud they'd been putting forth before, um, with military retirees, instead of changing the CPI on them, they just uh, knocked a percent off the, um, the percentage point off the uh, cost of living adjustment. Hmm. <clears throat> at least, at least, air people know what's being done to them. Yeah. Um, if you look at those government numbers, uh, and this is really criminal uh, in in, ter- in terms of what they've been, been doing there, because uh, the average guy looks at those numbers for more than just uh, social security adjustments. Um, Many people have their salaries tied to it. Sure. If, you, if you're an investor, you look at the uh, inflation rate as a, sort of a benchmark. I've got to beat this with my mm-hmm. um, with, 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 with my investments. Or mm-hmm. if, if you have an asset such as a piece of property you're running or uh, you're paying paying rent, uh, may well have an escalator clause uh, in it tied to uh, the CPI. If you're relying on the government's inflation number for any of those areas you're getting too low a rate, which means you're not getting an adequate return on your investments. It means you're not getting an adequate adjustment to your salary, and you're not uh, uh, getting an adequate adjustment to the value of your assets, or if you're the guy that's paying it, you're, you're making out like a bandit. So, um, so John, let me ask you, would the, would the inflation now be comparable to what we were going through in the 1970s, uh, most yeah, of probably. the 70s? Yeah, probably. Uh, yeah, and so but, and so but, that's but, when but the changes what? were made. Right, at, I think during Ronald Reagan, some of the changes they started to yes, make. Right, that's that's when it started. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it got exasper- exacerbated in the Clinton administration. Right. So now that's that's one part of the average person's uh, demise and his his financial well being. The other part is unemployment, which you point out. Uh, if we counted the same way that we used to count uh, during the 1930s, for example, what are your numbers suggesting? I mean, we do see the employment rate, the number of people employed, and that continues to to fall very dramatically. But what do you what would you see as unemployment now if we use the same yardstick as we used in the past? Well, the uh, the modern unemployment uh, surveying actually started uh, about 1940. So the, the estimates from the Great Depression were were reconstructed. But the way I like to look at it, very simply, is if you went around the country <clears throat> and asked everyone whether or not he or she was unemployed, average person has a pretty good opinion on that. You'd get a rapid response. You'd get a you'd get a pretty much of a, a, a full count, and you'd get a much higher unemployment rate than the government's reporting. And the government had measures like that um, in uh, 1994 where they counted um, people they called as discouraged workers. Mm-hmm. These were people who had um, uh, not looked for work in the last four weeks but considered themselves unemployed, were ready and able to work, wanted a job. Um, after 1994, when they redefined the series, they lopped off uh, uh, the better part of the discouraged workers uh, because they hadn't looked for work in the last year. 
Mm-hmm. Other countries like Canada still count the full <clears throat> magnitude of the discouraged workers. Mm-hmm. The reason you've seen the uh, headline unemployment drop, now, now about 7%, that is um, that's because of the definition. Um, people are unemployed for a long time. Uh, they, they stop looking for work, but they're still unemployed. They fall out of the category where they've actively looked for work in the last four weeks. In order to be in that headline number, you have to look for work in the last four weeks. Once once you go beyond that, uh, you fall you, you fall out of the official uh, headline uh, labor force number. Um, so as far as you see, the labor force shrinking, and that's that's why the headline unemployment is coming down. But if you um, they have a broader measure called U six. The government puts out six measures. U three is a headline number. U six is their broadest measure, which includes a short term discouraged workers, people who've been discouraged for less than a year. It also includes people who are uh, working part time for economic reasons because they they can't get a full time job, although they want a full time job. Uh, That's running up over thirteen percent. Um, but again, after a year, if they've been discouraged, they, they, they just disappear from the government's mm. accounting. Wow. Uh, I, I estimate the um, long-term discouraged workers, and based on that, uh, you're seeing unemployment up around 23%. And I, I put out a number like that, and people say, oh, my goodness, you know, that's uh, pretty close to the 25% I remember right. was cited for the Great Depression. Right, right. Well, that's, um, that's accurate in terms of that's a popularly... Uh, published number on the Great Depression, but what you have to keep in mind is that when that was estimated, uh, somewhat over 20% of the population lived and worked on farms. Mm-hmm. Today, that's less than 2%. Yeah. And uh, again, back in the Great Depression, you'd go and live with Aunt Mabel on her farm and sure. help there, and you, you were counted as employed, but yeah. you, you survived. Uh, now you're in the... Um, the agricultural area is less than 2%. Yep. If you look at the non-farm unemployment rate in the Great Depression, that got up to about 35%. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really the comparable number for what I'm estimating here. So we're, we're shy of that. We're as bad as we have been um, in, in the post-World War II era and in the, in, in the post-Great Depression era. Okay. But we're not quite to the Great Depression levels yet. Okay, John. I, well, I think we're going to get there. Okay, John. Well, I want to get back on this this topic of hyperinflation. One of the problems that I have with the argument uh, is that um, with such mass poverty, I think growing de- uh, de- uh, the uh, decline of the middle class, his purchasing power, his impoverishment. That uh, where does the demand come from? And I know that your your main thesis is that we're going to see a dollar collapse and that uh, there will be a loss of confidence in the dollar. And I can see where that would happen because, as you point out, we're becoming, we are, in fact, already an insolvent nation. So uh, at some point in time, people are going to say, well, all of this dollar printing, we don't want those things anymore. Indeed, I think there's signs already that the Chinese and others are saying we're getting tired of your currency. Chinese seem to be moving more towards gold. They're importing huge amounts of gold. Uh, all, All of that is happening. So I could see how the dollar could could lose its uh, its its luster. How the dollar could really be uh, shunned by the rest of the world. Now I pick up a uh, a newsletter from A. Gary Schilling, uh, well known economist. I'm sure you know you know of him, or if you don't know him personally, sure. he's been on this show, and he's predicting a continued strong dollar this year. Where, Schilling certainly knows 
I don't know if he sees the world exactly like you do with respect to your numbers. Maybe he doesn't. Maybe that's the problem. Uh, but um, but how can some people like Schilling see a strong dollar or a relatively stable dollar going forward this year when you think uh, basically it's a foregone conclusion the dollar is going to be trashed? Well, it, it depends on uh, again at the thing at the things that you. Uh, are, are are assessing in, in the in the formula here first in terms of uh, uh, the, the the hyperinflation per se. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there, we're, we're not, I'm not looking at an inflation here that's driven by strong economic demand. Okay, um, that's uh, I mean that's a happier type of inflation. You have Absolutely. a strong economy. Yep. prices are booming because uh, demand's strong. Demand's outstripping supply. Production's increasing. Jobs are increasing. That's the happy type of inflation. That's one you'd rather live with than one we're seeing here. More like what we had in the 1970s to an extent. Yes, well, indeed. And in fact, most of the uh, the bad recessions we've had have, have generally been inflationary recessions uh, tied to high high uh, oil prices of all. Mm-hmm. And that's that's an issue here. What the Fed has been trying to do has been to debase the dollar. Mm-hmm. If you go back to 2008, and this is where, where this crisis brought in the... the um, Outlook into the, in the into the current period from the end of the decade, uh, the Fed was looking to debase the dollar to prevent a great deflation, like you had in the 30s. Mm-hmm. To have a 1930s style deflation, you need to have a collapse of the banking system where people lose their deposits. That's what happened in the 1930s. Money supply imploded by a third. Uh, you, you had a uh, inflation was uh, down by a third. The economy is down by a third. Terrible times. Um, but but we don't have a circumstance here where the money supply is going to implode. Mm-hmm. Um, instead, the uh, when you look at the money supply, and the Fed's been pumping a lot of a lot of money into the system into the monetary base, but that's not flowed through to the money supply because the banks haven't been lending it. On the other hand, you've had a lot of money that's been getting out of the uh, country, and you have an overhang now on the against the money supply of uh, about sixteen trillion dollars of. Uh, uh, cash or near cash instruments. That's the same order of magnitude as the broadest measure of the money supply M3, at least as I continue to track mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Also about 16 trillion. So you have about double the domestic money supply, which is what people look at when they count the money supply. Mm-hmm. You, you have that again overhanging the, 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 the U.S. markets here. You have a ma- massive decline in the dollar. You're going to have, uh, you're, you're going to have uh, problems with the uh, value of the dollar. Uh, domestically, because the Fed's going to have to have to respond to this. What's driving the dollar? All sorts of relative things, but there are four major factors here that are very high risk, very negative, and any one of them can blow apart. And when it does, uh, you're going to start seeing heavy selling. There may be intervention. We've had intervention. We had intervention where they've knocked down gold and playing all sorts of games with jawboning, trying to work a fine balance with the dollar, but the um, when the fundamentals uh, go against the currency markets, uh, it's just a matter of time before the uh, the fundamentals went out. Unless you see the fundamentals changed by the government, but there's nobody can change the fundamentals. Mm-hmm. Here, here are the big issues. Number one, uh, long term insolvency of the United States. We discussed that mm-hmm. with the where uh, <clears throat> where the where the uh, gap based accounting is showing the deficit expanding six trillion a year. You're over ninety trillion in. Uh, Obligations now cannot possibly be covered in the normal course of business. Uh, countries that do that, when they run out of the ability to fund it, uh, when their obligations are in the same currency they print, they almost always 
print the currency to meet the obligation, which gives you uh, the debasement of the currency and the hyperinflation. That's where things ultimately go. Um, you look back to 2011. You had negotiations there trying to address the long-term solvency issues. They blew apart. When they blew apart, and you got the, the rating downgrade on the United States, mm -hmm. we had a currency panic. Mm -hmm. And except they, there's all sorts of intervention. This this was pegged the, uh, their, their franc uh, to, the, to the euro. Right. Um, uh, all sorts of massive yeah. interventions to keep the system from collapsing again. It was really a... a you know, a, a secondary um, near panic, near collapse mm -hmm. from what happened uh, in in 2008. Mm -hmm. Everything that happened there was then all those issues were pushed to, off to after the election and pushed off again. And now we just went through a um, a budget negotiation process where um, they've worked out a deal for uh, through the 2015 2015 um, package, uh, which in turn puts all the issues off till after the uh, 2014 election. Mm -hmm. The global markets have been sitting around since 2008. They, they gave the U.S. Some, uh, some leeway to try and hold things together, but the U.S. has done nothing to stabilize the, this, the, the, the circumstance for the long term. It's all been short-term pushing things a little more into the future. Mm -hmm. Everyone knows the U.S. dollar is going to be a losing proposition. No one wants to hold it. Um, the average guy, the average uh, big holder, may not want to be the first one out the door, but when yeah. it starts to go, they're all they're all going to all, all going to be running. And this is um, so. So you, the number one trigger is the anything tied to the long term solvency issues of the United States coming ahead in the next month. You're going to have another, uh, in, in theory, a um, another argument over the debt ceiling. Yep. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen with that. Whether or not they get into serious negotiations with that. The global markets are already at at at, at the brink. Um, the U.S. has lost its credibility. The mm -hmm. dollar has lost its credibility. It's lost its safe haven status. And as you see, uh, panic selling develop here. It's also going to lose its reserve status. Weakness in the dollar. Um, you look at it over time. Eighty percent correlation. The dollar goes down. Oil prices go up. Domestic inflation goes up. So here, with the weakness in the dollar, would be a direct driver of the initial up upturn in inflation. Mm -hmm. um, heavy selling of the dollar, uh, panic dumping of uh, $16 trillion overhang, you're, you, you, you have a, a terrible circumstance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But, so not, the number one issue is the, um, the, the ongoing deficit problems. Number two issue is the Federal Reserve and the banking system. Mm -hmm. It's quantitative easing, uh, not as represented. has nothing to do with the, with the Fed trying to stimulate the economy. Mm -hmm. Although that's it's, maybe its official mandate from the yeah. federal government, yeah. the, the, the Fed's primary function in life is to support the banking system. Right. The banking system is not lending normally into the flow of commerce. The banks are still um, financially stressed. The, reason, the quantitative easing is being provided by the Fed to continue um, uh, providing liquidity to the banks. It's not going to cut back on that. Yeah. The little tapering we saw was, uh, was generally... Um, Propaganda? Uh, I think, I'm sorry? Propaganda? Well, you know, window, window dressing for the incoming Fed chairman. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think there's anything more than that. Mm -hmm. In terms of the economy, the economy the economy is being so supposedly used here as a benchmark. The Fed knows they can't stimulate the economy. Uh, uh, Bernanke said he, there's nothing they can do to bring down the unemployment rate, although they might use that as, as, as a benchmark. Mm -hmm. uh, benchmark here. They're using the weakness in the economy as political cover 
They're providing QE3. QE3 is going to be ongoing. The banking system's in serious trouble. The Fed's locked in, not only locked into long-term quantitative easing here, but as the situation de- uh, deteriorates, and, and the new Fed chairman uh, appears to be uh, uh, sympathetic with uh, Bernanke's outlook on, on, the, on the system, uh, you're, you're going to see, if anything, expanded quantitative easing. Mm-hmm. And somewhere in the not-too-distant future, you're going to see, number one, uh, no new tapering, and, and uh, actually a likely reversal as that happens, right. major selling pressure against the dollar. Again, yeah. that's been used to fine-tune the dollar and the stock market, and the stock market I, I just avoid for a number of reasons. Yeah. Not, well, not a real market now. Well, I, I know. Last, I'm yeah, sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead, John. Finish it. Uh, two, two other uh, key areas which are not fully understood or which are only beginning to take hold. And I'm an old line currency trader. Back in the 70s, I, I, when Nixon floated the dollar, I became a currency trader out of necessity. Mm-hmm. The, uh, uh, the, the chainsaw business that were importing chainsaws from West Germany. Long mm-hmm. story. But. Uh, uh, the, 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 the last two factors here, number three, is the economy, mm-hmm. relative economic strength. Headlines are the economy is recovering, everything's fine and dandy. As I mentioned earlier, the economy is not recovered, it's starting to turn down again. You're going to see much weaker economic data ahead, a growing recognition that we have uh, the common perception or the, the, the common story will be a new recession or a double-dip recession where actually it's an ongoing uh, a problem from what 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 happened in the 2008 collapse, um, but that is relative economic weakness, very bad sign. It also blows apart the budget forecast because all the budget forecasts are based on positive economic growth going forward, mm-hmm. not 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 continued weakness sure. and downturn. Um, the, uh, the fourth, fourth area is uh, political, uh, public, and political confidence. Political stability, uh-huh. relative political stability of our government against the rest of the world, and there, there's a very simple surrogate for that that's worked pretty well as a as a uh, an indicator and predictor of what's happening to the dollar. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a big factor in the dollar's weakness around uh, uh, the Watergate crisis with R- R- Richard Nixon. Mm-hmm. Now that, that's that's the era in which I was uh, very actively involved with currency trade. currencies. Sure, um, you look at the. Um, uh, the the, uh, the president's uh, the jobs the president's uh, jobs appro- uh, job approval rating. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, when that's low, usually the currency's weak, and that's that's near an historic low. If it isn't at one, yeah. um, nothing here is going to improve that. The Fed's locked into the uh, ongoing easing; it can't get out of it. It's going to well. It's easing what it's done right now. This last year, year mm-hmm. 2013, allowing for all the Distortions to the debt and the debt restraint, debt issuance restraint that was forced by the debt ceiling. Right. Um, so, John, yes. Yeah, so, John, we we we're a little short on time here, and unfortunately, okay. there's so much more we could talk about. But as sort of as as all these factors you're mentioning, these four factors sort of come together. It's easy to see how the dollar could be could really kind of come under some enormous pressure and lose its reserve status. Then, what takes its place? I know you've been a long-term believer in in owning gold, but you know when I look at the Cyprus crisis, for example, that would have been the time I thought that gold should have really taken off. 
In fact, uh, it was Bitcoin that moved higher. Uh, and, and, you know, there are those that uh, on this show, and I believe they're right, uh, that there was some hanky-panky going on in the gold markets to drive the price lower because if the gold price had taken off at that time, it would have been a signal to everybody to leave, uh, you know, to, to get out of their, their demand deposit accounts or whatever and get into gold. But in fact, with gold went down, people were more complacent about it. Meantime, Bitcoin starts to raise its head at that point in time. And then subsequently, I'm seeing uh, companies like J.P. Morgan, uh, Bank of America, and a lot of other uh, really uh, large institutions that are embracing Bitcoin. So my, here's a question for you, John. I agree with you that gold is a place to be, but could the government have something else in mind so that they can control, uh, perhaps control our every move, our behavior, and know exactly what we spend uh, and make sure that they get every last pound of flesh possible from citizens? Might they uh, be looking to to instead of go back to some sort of an honest gold-backed system, to some sort of an electronic, some sort of a, um, a digital monetary system, which we have the technology to do now, uh, do, do you think that might be a possibility? Uh, there, there's not much that I'd put beyond uh, a government in this kind of uh, distress. Uh-huh. Um, but there, there are a couple of things you have to keep in mind. Uh, the, even with a gold standard, and I'm not necessarily uh, predicting a gold standard or advocating one. <clears throat> I'm just predicting gold. I'm, 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 what I'm what I'm looking at is gold as a preservation and store of wealth to get through the crisis. Mm-hmm. The crisis here will occur as long as the system is unstable, as long as the the the, uh, the fiscal uh, imbalance is so extreme in the U.S. If you if you were on a gold standard and and, and still had that fiscal extreme. Um, extreme imbalance, you'd be the, the dollar would be uh, consistently and continually devalued against gold in order to balance the system. Mm-hmm. You have to bring this balance, the system, and the balance to have the, the currency system work. Once you lose the confidence, which is what we're on the brink of, uh, it, 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 it doesn't make any difference how it's structured if you haven't put the basic system in balance. If the basic system's in balance, you don't need a gold standard. The dollar would work. It's worked sure. mm-hmm. a, long, a long time. So the, unless they address the problems, it doesn't make much difference. From the standpoint of the individual, uh, this is the, the circumstance here is one where what, whatever you're using to buy <laughs> goods and services with um, will tend to be uh, depreciated very sharply in the... Uh, I believe, number one in the year ahead, and certainly uh, over time until the system, again, is, is, um, is, is restructured. But again, the system has to be brought into basic economic and, 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 and fiscal balance. Yeah. The gold, gold over time uh, is, is the uh, best store of wealth that preserves the purchasing power of the dollars put into it. And, and gold goes got knocked all over the place. Indeed, there's been hanky-panky. Yeah. Very clearly, you can see the hanky-panky that's been taking place here. And and uh, the, the people who are behind it are, are the ones who very much uh, dislike gold because it shows they're not doing doing their job. And that's the, that's the Federal Reserve and, 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 the, uh, and the federal government. If they were doing their jobs, if they had the system in balance, uh, if they had a, a reasonable monetary policy, they wouldn't have to worry about gold. Gold is signals of problems. It's a thin enough market these guys can go in and, and uh, knock it all over the place if they want to. You, you have a group that's, whose sole purpose is to supposedly 
uh, prevent um, an unusual, unstable market. This is the yes. president's working group on the market. Plunge protection Green, team. Plunge protection team. Greenspan indicated they had, at different times, been in the oil markets, the gold markets, the bond market, the currency markets, the stock market, to keep the markets orderly. If they view gold as a danger, they'll do whatever they have to do to intervene with gold. Again, intervention only works so long as you don't have a, a fundamental panic or a strong fundamental movement uh, uh, pushing things. Yeah. Well, John, a, a panic decline in the dollar, the uh, gold will... Uh, Gold will go higher. Well, John, I think you know what you're saying makes rings true to me to a very, very great extent, almost completely, if not completely. I want to thank you very much for sharing your ideas uh, with our listeners. Again, we could go on and on, no doubt about that. But I should tell people that rather than let John give you free information, I think it would also be only fair uh, to pay him for his hard work because he does an extremely good job. I'm a regular subscriber, have been for years, and you should go to shadowstats.com. That's shadowstats.com to learn more about John's work and also to sign up for his letter. It's a very reasonably priced letter if you care to know what's really going on with the government numbers as opposed to the phony stuff that we hear from the Bureau of Labor Statistics and other uh, government organizations as well as Wall Street. I think shadowstats.com shines a light on on these rascals and and then you know that's really what gold does why they hate gold they want to get rid of gold because it's i look at gold as sort of like the floodlight coming on a an intruder or break somebody's breaking into a house in the middle of the night these guys hate the truth and uh, john williams uh, provides uh, truthful information for, through his hard work his hard diligent honest work and john I want to thank you very much for being with us once again and uh, all the best to you and uh, let's keep safe in this in this difficult year because one of the things that i worry about is that uh, when economic times become extremely difficult uh, there may be uh, you know our our safety and our um our, our happiness could be at stake. So I wish you all the best, you and your family, as we enter 2014. And thank you very much again for coming on our show. Well, again, Jay, thank you for having me. And again, all the kind wishes to you and your family and, and your listeners. Thank you very much, John. Well, folks, don't go away. Coming up next at jtaylormedia.com will be Dr. Mark Thornton. He's an Austrian economist with the Mises Institute. I want to ask Dr. Thornton about John Williams' hyperinflationary views. I want to get his take on that, as well as some of the deflationary theories that are out there, like uh, that of Robert Prechter, Ian Gordon, and A. Gary Schilling. So uh, go to jtaylormedia.com. To listen to Dr. Thornton, uh, what he has to say about that topic, as well as Daniel McAdams uh, of the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity. He'll be with us later in the next hour to talk about current geopolitical events. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.